Hello there and welcome to Startup Kitchen Talk where we discuss cooking startups and apprentice becoming master chefs. Our today's guest went from transporting people in the kiwi.com to virtual transportation in the pocket virtuality startup. Now she is a Seek startup mentor. Lucia Brescheva, welcome to our Startup Kitchen Talk. Hi, thank you for having me. How was your day so far? I think it's around 3, 3.30 p.m. Uh, yeah, it was really nice. I even managed to squeeze in a run, so that squeeze was nice. Squeeze in a run. A more productive uh, day than mine, uh, to be sure. Uh, what did you have for breakfast and for lunch? Uh, for breakfast, I had uh, granola, and for lunch, uh, I had chicken breast with rice and a salad. Even healthier uh, cuisine than mine. Okay, I'll take notice. Um, as with meals during the day, uh, we start our podcast uh, chronologically. Uh, let's start with the tkiwi.com, uh, because you started there, I think, 2014. Yes. Uh, what was your starting position there? Uh, so I joined the company uh, as a COO and uh, uh, it uh, uh, happened uh, from uh, the sort of friendship we had with Oliver uh, prior to him founding uh, uh, Skypicker, which was the previous name of Kiwicom. And uh, uh, he uh, just like sort of cracked the uh, formula for uh, uh, the business uh, model uh, for the company. And uh, it started uh, to pick up pace and started to grow. So at that time, uh, uh, it had like uh, 10 people mm -hmm. in the team. And uh, Oliver needed uh, uh, to focus his energy on the development of the product and also on the business development. Uh, so that uh, in terms of product, it meant uh, getting more airlines into the database. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of business development, getting uh, more meta searches that would uh, showcase the results produced by the algorithm uh, of uh, the company, uh, meaning that more clients would find uh, the combinations created by uh, Skypicker and uh, uh, we would have more sales. And uh, uh, thanks to this uh, combination, uh, the company was growing and uh, uh, with uh, his focus on these two areas, he had very little time for the internal organization of the growing company uh, and uh, it was important uh, to build a customer support center for the first clients that were coming in. The early days were very, uh, very rustic and very manual work. So basically we were literally booking manually the first uh, plane, tickets, uh, plane tickets and sending them manually via email to the customers. Did you use Excel back then? Uh, not even. Not even. <laughs> oh my God! What did you use? Uh, well, just like uh, uh, mail clients and uh, uh, stuff. So, uh, and there was a database in Trello. Uh, so uh, that was uh, really uh, very uh, rudimental and we needed to automate it and uh, to uh, create even answers for the customer support guys uh, that they could uh, send uh, to the clients and not uh, come up with mailing messages uh, for each client separately. It was a very personal approach at the beginning. 
And uh, uh, so I joined in. I started with the booking uh, of uh, the first tickets uh, myself and uh, sort of helped uh, create the first uh, uh, beginnings of the customer center, booking center, and uh, all of the surrounding uh, teams. And uh, as uh, we were growing, uh, I think that at the end of the year, there was already 30 of us. <laughs> By the end of the following year, like 300 of us. And the year after that, 800. So it was growing very fast. And uh, uh, I was doing really sort of everything from uh, financial reports through hiring of all the non-development stuff to... Uh, buying toilet paper for the offices and finding new bigger offices because there was true COO, yeah, yes, uh, as uh, uh, as COO, and uh, uh, with the complexity of the uh, business uh, uh, also and uh, the sales uh, also grew uh, the demands in terms of uh, financial reporting and uh, uh, stuff that could be improved uh, on the financial side. Because uh, we were processing really many currencies. You could buy uh, plane tickets in euros, but uh, we would be buying them on the side of the airlines, for example, in American dollars and British pounds. And uh, uh, so there was a lot of work to be done in terms of the uh, f uh, currency exchange, which uh, was eating up a lot of uh, our margin. Also, uh, the deals with the payment processing banks because, like, uh, they were uh, also taking uh, really big uh, fees, and uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, money to be saved on that area as well. So I moved to the role of uh, CFO uh, to focus on uh, these financial sides, and uh, after some time. Uh, we uh, saw that uh, it was still necessary to sort of uh, co-manage uh, the company uh, in terms uh, of both operations and internal stuff and the external and product stuff. So then I moved uh, uh, to the role of uh, managing director, uh, which was uh, like uh, a second in command to uh, the CEO. So you could think that like the CEO was more uh, externally facing towards business partners um, and uh, uh, still focused on the business development and product development while uh, I was uh, focused on making sure that uh, the company was uh, growing healthily on the internal side, that basically stuff worked, that customers were being serviced, that everyone had a chair and a table to sit at, uh, and so on. Um, you started in 2014 there. Uh, let's paint the picture of 2014. Uh, Facebook just acquired WhatsApp. iPhone 6 was introduced by Apple. Ice bucket challenge is a big thing. It's a big topic. And Taylor Swift just dropped uh, her head to shake it off. It is ages ago in a you know, startup environment. Well, it's almost 10 years now. <laughs> it's almost 10 years now. And I think uh, when you're counting startup years, it's mainly, maybe you count them as a dog years. Yeah. So <laughs> in normal life, it's almost 10 years. And um, in startup life, it seems like 60. 
um, at back then in our country, meaning that Czech Republic, but uh, speaking, I think, about the sea region itself uh, as a whole, it was difficult to raise money. There were very limited amounts of VC funds. Was it a wild west for you back then? Uh Sort of, uh, because, uh, uh, well, Oliver had to raise uh, at first uh, 10 million crowns uh, to sort of uh, uh, kickstart the very early uh, beginnings of uh, uh, Skypicker. And he did go around uh, the market uh, quite a bit. And uh, he was still very early stages, so uh, basically he had a lot of trouble finding uh, an investor he did eventually and uh, uh, when I was already there uh, we did need uh, at some point uh, money but it was more uh, uh, working capital uh, to mm-hmm. finance uh, uh, to finance the sales uh, of the tickets because uh, we had a very brilliant deal with uh, uh, the bank that uh, they not only took uh, uh, a very high percentage of the money that uh, uh, was processed but they also kept like five percent of that money for 180 days uh, as a rolling reserve. Uh, and as our sales were growing rapidly, this rolling reserve was actually lacking in uh, our uh, in our bank account. And also, when the customer paid us, uh, the money to our bank account would arrive only uh, in eight to ten days. But we had to pay the tickets for that customer instantly. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had like ten business days to finance ahead. And uh, that was uh, straining us very much, which was partly also the reason why I moved to the CFO role. And uh, so uh, then we managed uh, to find uh, Andre Tomek, who uh, uh, gave us another round of uh, financing for this uh, mm-hmm. for this uh, uh, working capital uh, injection. Not only VCs, but you also mentioned hiring. That was your role uh, previously yeah. to, uh, to your CFO role. Um, how was it to explain people what you are trying to achieve? That you don't have as much money for the um, for the salary, for example, yeah. at that point. But if they stick with the team, they can grow rapidly and become uh, might become part of something really big. How difficult was this to explain? So uh, I think that in this sense we are very lucky at the time because uh, I don't think we would be at able to achieve this uh, hiring spree uh, like in the last few years uh, when it was really like uh, uh, difficult to hire any role but uh, back then We were uh, happy to hire uh, even like junior stuff because basically we needed at some point uh, anyone who had uh, a brain between their ears uh, and willingness to join us. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, it got very quickly filtered out uh, by the enthusiasm. And I would uh, dare to say that the first uh, uh, dozens of people were really enthusiasts. Uh, it went in hand with uh, the culture in the organization. It was like a young team. Uh, there was a lot of party. Uh, <laughs> I will not be hiding that. 
And uh, everyone sort of became friends and uh, uh, many of the, those who were there back then and are still with the company today are sort of like a really hardcore uh, family. So um, the first hires, uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was okay. Uh, later on when we really started to have like uh hundreds of uh people we needed to shift this approach because for many of those it already were people who sort of went to work for the salary and yeah, they... I meant to ask like how many people can you have in your startup in your team to you know keep this kind of party friends yeah. structure how many people do you think you can have and what amount is too much yeah i would say like it was the best under 50 yeah. and it was still manageable to like 150 mm -hmm. but uh, above that it started uh, splitting into the uh, teams and uh, Well, as we were also a young uh, management team, uh, we didn't do the best job in terms of uh, onboarding and managing the super rapid growth. I'm not sure that with more experience we would have done it much better mm -hmm. because the pace was really brutal. But uh, uh, we had to start uh, uh, fixing uh, many things uh, on the go as the company grew uh, to like a critical size. And uh, we started to realize that, like you said, many of the people who joined early and uh, grew rapidly in the hierarchy of the company because like okay, you're here for three months, so you're now in charge of the new team of uh, hires. Uh, so there you go, you're a manager. But uh, these guys didn't exactly get uh, managerial or leadership uh, uh, training. So uh, many of them did as best as they could. But uh, many were really new in these roles, and uh, uh, so it uh, sometimes was even difficult for their own teams because uh, even like uh, things g like getting feedback or giving feedback uh, were new to them, and so uh, sometimes uh, uh, sometimes there was a bit of struggle. Did you hire a professional coach? Uh, yes, la later on we we did and. Uh, We did a training uh, across the whole company. The Kiwis CEO and founder Oliver Dlohi describes himself and is known as a very imaginative founder that heavily relies on intuition. Was your role sometimes to balance that uh, hotpot with rationality and cold numbers? Uh, I think so, yeah, like uh, uh, that uh, Oliver uh, likes uh, to be challenged and uh, that doesn't always mean that he will listen, but uh, he might incorporate some of the uh, feedback. And uh, I think that uh, uh, in this sense he did a good job uh, in terms of personal growth and being able to... Uh, to uh, look for feedback and mm -hmm. uh, uh, learn and uh, move forward in his role because obviously it's very different to be a kid with uh, an idea and a small uh, uh, startup and uh, then the CEO of a 2000 hat uh, company that uh, 
that's heavily invested and uh, uh, where you have a much uh, bigger responsibility. Um, I always wonder, was kiwi named after a bird, a person, or after the fruit? Uh, it was uh, named uh, after uh, the short and uh, universally uh, uh, known uh, name that sounds uh, pretty much the same across languages and mm-hmm. was actually available to buy. Oh, <laughs> domain, right? Yeah, the yeah. domain, yeah. So um, uh, it wasn't uh, anything really uh, sophisticated, actually. Yeah, it's hard to find a word that is uh, transferable to any languages. Yeah, that sounds uh, and the, like you say it and people know how to write it in all languages. Yeah. I thought it's pineapple or a pineapple is always a pineapple or ananas or something yeah. ananas. It's similar with tea and chai. Kiviki.com had a few public disputes. The biggest to my knowledge was with uh, Ryanair Airlines and with some of its investors as well. Uh, did these disputes affect the company and uh, did they affect your work? Uh, well, I think that uh, um, since the early days, uh, Kiwi was uh, sort of going against the stream. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you could say that in some ways uh, uh, we had to fake it till we made it. Uh, and uh, therefore, like uh, having some airlines not being entirely happy with uh, uh, what Kiwi does was sort of part of the story. Uh, so obviously, whenever such uh, case hits, uh, uh, you try to solve it uh, so that it doesn't actually affect uh, the company and uh, especially doesn't uh, uh, like uh, break our neck. But uh, uh, you need to keep moving and uh, uh, just do what you can to resolve uh, uh, resolve the case uh, as good as possible. And did it, did it affect you personally? Um, not really. Oliver was always very positive <laughs> about the uh, future outcome and uh, confident that uh, uh, that uh, it will work out. So I think that he managed to project uh, that onto the rest of the team. Um, and why did you leave? I don't. It was a two thousand eighteen. So what was the reason? Yeah. So uh, Oliver at the beginning asked me to help him uh, build uh, the company so that it sort of always works and uh, so that he can rely on it. And uh, uh, the four years have been very uh, demanding. I agree with your uh, comparison to dog years because I otherwise cannot explain how we managed uh, to do all that uh, in only four years in terms of growth. Uh, but somehow we did, and uh, it was demanding. It was uh, very uh, challenging, and I was very happy to see that uh, uh, from where at the beginning there was nothing, there weren't any teams, there wasn't any internal organization, and uh, we managed to build the teams and uh, uh, have the leaders that were able to lead these teams uh, uh, more and more on their own. So uh, when I saw that kind of uh, independence, uh, I thought that uh, 
basically my role sort of be- became redundant because uh, there wasn't anything more to be built uh, uh, internally and it was more a story of now uh, like uh, making it uh, more perfect or like making it work more efficiently uh, but uh, there weren't any new teams to sort of grow. In one of your interviews, you said that you love the early stage when the startup is, you know, fresh out of the R&D oven. Uh, What is so attractive about it? Well, uh, like I said, at the beginning, there's nothing and suddenly you get to create stuff. So uh, you out of the chaos, you sort of uh, filter out uh, an organization that is then there to challenge the status quo of uh, how stuff is done in the world. Would it be in terms of uh, how you search for your plane tickets or how you buy your groceries and so on? So from an idea, there is suddenly uh, an organization that serves uh, up to millions of people and uh, brings uh, value to them, which uh, I find somewhat magical. So you like that the, the, the burning fire at the beginning. At the same time, it is very demanding, um, you know, even time-wise, because it's very often it's 24-7, weekend work, etc. How did you handle that? Uh, well, it was very demanding, and I think that for the first uh, uh, year or two, I barely had a weekend off, and uh, uh, it took its toll. At some point, I started to uh, get uh, sick, like nothing uh, major, but like uh, uh, a serious cough over here or uh, another illness over there, and I had to take uh, lots of antibiotics. And uh, after several months, uh, the doctors thought that there might be something wrong with my immunity. I, they ran multiple tests, uh, uh, CT scan of the head and stuff, and they discovered that I'm completely healthy, but that it was just probably stress-related. And I started working with uh, a professional coach, mm-hmm. and that actually helped me a lot to get my head straight and to prioritize my work because I think that what was most stressful for me was that there was so much happening at once and uh, basically it felt like everything is a priority at once. So uh, yeah, and that you would sort give of, anxiety to anyone. Yeah, and you sort of needed to resolve everything. Uh, uh, so choosing where to start was uh, difficult. So I had to take a more strategic approach on how to actually change the company structure uh, so that uh, so that it would be uh, more able to resolve its issues on its own. Knowing all that, do you think that startup founders and CEO are maybe kind of crazy? Then they are willingly doing this to themselves. They must be. They must be. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be going for it. <laughs> uh, firstly, you worked in Kiwi, which is obviously a B2C company. And later, you joined Pocket Virtuality, which is a B2B. What is the major difference in Uh, B2C versus uh, B2B startup approach? Well, uh, definitely B2B allows you probably to breathe a little more. Like uh, the pace 
isn't as crazy. Obviously, if you have a service that uh, requires you uh, to provide a product that's up and running 24-7 to the customer, there might be a lot of pressure in that. But uh, uh, other than that, the sales cycle is much longer, uh, more like uh, in terms of uh, one year rather than days. <laughs> And uh, uh, there's a completely different approach uh, uh, in terms of the branding, positioning, and uh, how you actually find uh, the customers, obviously. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, two very different worlds uh, and approaches. And I must say the B2B one is uh, probably slightly uh, healthier, although even there you still have the pressure and anxiety from like, will it work out? Will we close the deal? Uh, uh, and uh, so on, because... Uh, you can't pilot stuff uh, as quickly as uh, with uh, the B2C, where you can really, on an hourly basis, uh, evaluate how the customers respond to what you are changing on the product. But describing what you liked uh, that much at working at Kiwi, did you miss the fire? Uh, I must say that uh, after becoming a mom, uh, the fire is at home <laughs> constantly, so I don't miss it uh, all that much. I have it uh, elsewhere. Yeah, I think there's, uh, being a startup woman, there is only a limited amount of fire that you can put down to not to get burned by it all, right? Probably. Um Coming back to the topic of the startup to scale up change, there are many examples of the leadership being replaced when this is happening, when the startup is scaling, when it's no longer a team of friends, but it's, you know, a couple of hundred employees company. Um, Oliver Lohi managed to uh, get this transition done and remain CEO, but many others didn't. Um, what would you recommend uh, to the, you know, founder of a startup that it's now becoming a scale-up? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's uh, natural that uh, these are sort of uh, different uh, uh, roles. Uh, and uh, like I mentioned, uh, uh, getting people excited about uh, just your own idea and trying to make it up on the go is uh, very different and getting this excitement to like a couple or a couple of dozens of employees is uh, a very different dynamic uh, from uh, managing a company that's up and running and uh, needs to deliver uh, results and uh, has uh, big uh, engagements and stuff. Uh, so you need to start thinking much more strategically and uh, uh, plan uh, much more ahead. And uh, what I find uh, uh, very helpful, and I think like from what I saw with uh, the leaders I worked with, uh, planning in terms of having a long-term vision of where you are going with the company, what's the end goal, and then like dividing it in terms of years backwards, uh, uh, like what we need to do this year if we want to be uh, at a certain level in five years 
it's uh, something that uh, helps a lot, not only the CEO himself, but the whole leadership so that uh, they can gain more autonomy uh, uh, when they are working with their teams and they can be much more helpful to the CEO himself. And in what situation would you recommend for the CEO or the founders to step down? What would he or she have to do? Well, uh, I think that when uh, the CEO actually keeps, uh, for example, promising stuff to the uh, to the investors and fails to deliver, and uh, basically uh, keeps going in circles in terms of like not being able to break out uh, uh, with uh, his product. And uh, although there is potential for the product on the market, uh, then uh, it's time to have this discussion. And uh, I think this should be sort of... Uh, like a prenup clause when mm -hmm. you enter in a relationship with uh, an investor that, uh, okay, now we are both very excited about this. You are a great CEO. You are a terrific uh, uh, investor. Let's do this together. But the day might come when we uh, see differently and actually have this discussion uh, upfront and say, okay, if this day come, Will we be able to uh, do it rationally? Because obviously, uh, when the years go by and potentially more money is involved, the emotions start to run high and uh, it's difficult for people to see clearly. And uh, I think that even people in relationships getting married should sort of have this discussion like, okay, now we're in love, but... Uh, uh, Maybe when we already have kids, we might feel differently about it. And uh, uh, how can we uh, how can we have, for example, a safe word or whatever uh, if the relationship fall apart, falls apart? Because, well, in this case, like 50% of marriages fall apart. So the probability is quite big. So uh, but people enter it uh, uh, only with their hopes up and sometimes then the kids get screwed up in the process afterwards. But I, that's another topic, sorry. I, no, but it's very interesting. When I would be interested in the numbers, if it is more probable that your marriage will be successful or that your startup is going to have um, a healthy, steady growth and it will make it, let's find out. I don't know, what would you be your bet? Uh, well, I think that uh, statistically, like 50% of the marriages don't fall apart, which doesn't necessarily mean that happy, they are yes. happy, but uh, they don't fall apart. So technically, like a company that doesn't uh, stop working, but uh, isn't it's uh, not a it's unicorn. Not a unicorn. Yeah. yeah, so we can consider them a sort of like half success. <laughs> And uh, uh, I think that in terms of the startups, the rate is uh, probably much lower like the success rates but they don't die they are sometimes yeah. they you know survive so but i they, don't have the numbers <laughs> they are just you know a small company private business and there's nothing wrong with and that there's nothing wrong with that but yeah let's compare like nice private business and um you know uh, agreed uh, marriage or something coming back to the 
you, you mentioned false promises uh, as a red flag. And um, I was wondering, where is the line? Because the fake it till you make it approach yeah. is, you know, being um, looked really high upon. It's, uh, it's being um, understood as a necessary part of startup life. But where is the line between fake it till you make it and false promises? Uh, so I think the line is um, quite clear in the term of uh, we uh, sort of like fake it till you make it in the sense um, uh, you start by building a prototype, something that's not complete yet. And then like when you see that the customers want it, want it then you uh, sort of build it into a more solid product from an MVP to uh, uh, something uh, uh, more reliable. While false promises is something that you like say, okay, we'll have that by, I don't know, the end of the quarter. And then it's not there. And you say like, well, yeah, we did, couldn't make it because we were doing this instead. And even though we didn't agree on this, like uh, we'll have this like uh, next time and you keep postponing, you keep making stuff uh, up and you keep even misleading the investor about like what the technology is based on, then that's really uh, a hard line uh, for uh, basically even uh, a criminal offense. Yeah, that's the difference between Oliver Dlohy and Elizabeth Holmes. Um, <laughs> there you have it. Uh, now you are a self-employed a startup mentor. Uh, what is your target uh, audience? Uh, Well, I actually don't really think about it that way because uh, uh, somehow uh, the people I work with, uh, they uh, uh, come to me on their own. Uh, but uh, uh, I I like to work with uh, founders and help them and the leadership uh, grow their uh, companies, ideally uh, for companies who somehow impact uh, how our society is uh, uh, working and so sort of uh, improving uh, uh, how we all operate. Uh, because I see that, uh, uh, well, the world is very much, uh, uh, many stuff is still very much offline and uh, uh, technology can uh, and digitalization can bring a lot of efficiency into that. Uh, uh, so I think that there's still plenty of potential uh, in this uh, area. And that's what I love about uh, working with uh, startups and with technology companies uh, in general, because you are sort of like breaking the way how stuff is done and trying to make it uh, slightly bit uh, Uh, more efficient and uh, somehow it happened that now I work with uh, several girls or women uh, who are transitioning internally to the role of uh, COO in uh, technology companies. And, uh, Which is something you can, you know, relate yeah, to. I can relate to that, and uh, so I enjoy really working with them. And it's funny to see many patterns in uh, uh, many different companies. Uh, uh, you see the patterns emerge uh, in terms of uh, how the CEOs operate uh, toward the rest of the leadership team, and uh, so on. So. Uh, and what are the patterns that um, that you witnessed working with those startups? Well, uh, for um, in many cases, uh, 
the teams in general or the leadership teams are hungry for the CEO to sort of like uh, uh, come up with a vision for the company so that they don't like just work from day to day uh, somehow like moving slightly forward but not knowing what's to come uh, in the upcoming uh, uh, future and sort of being left uh, in the dark. And for the CEOs, it's sometimes uh, scary to actually provide this sort of commitment of saying like, uh, yeah, I want my company uh, to be, I don't know, like uh, doing this and look like that within the next five years because they feel like, oh, my God, if I uh, if we don't get there, I will then feel like a failure or uh, mm-hmm. something like that. So uh, and then for the leadership team and the COOs in particular, it's very difficult to actually be doing their job properly if they don't know what to prepare uh, what to do with the company to prepare it for the for its future so when we were discussing the topics for our interview the slightly touched the subject of uh, comments on social media which might get sometimes harsh you have some of your experiences i have my experiences with that would you recommend something to do with that do not let you know negative comments sometimes uh, affect your work uh, certainly like uh, you need to be able to take in feedback from the people you work with definitely and uh, there will always uh, be haters so you need to be able to uh, filter through that and I even saw like uh, for the CEO role, for the CEO role it's the same like many times uh, a regular employee feels like he might be a much better CEO (laughs) than the CEO himself because, uh, uh, well, they probably don't see the real complexity uh, of uh, the job. So, uh, of course, uh, sometimes you might be doing stuff wrong. You might be, I don't know, uh, not very nice to people. And uh, uh, then probably it's uh, good to take in a feedback that uh, uh, you might try to be a bit more pleasant. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, um, it this might sound harsh, but uh, we're not going to work just like to be friends. But there's a job to do. We have responsibility towards uh, the shareholders, the owners of the company. So basically, sometimes the job isn't always just pleasant and you need to be doing stuff that not everyone likes. So uh, you need to find a balance between these things. Um, what's the worst thing that you've ever read about yourself on social media? Uh Like I mentioned in our talk earlier, I try not to read these things because I might learn uh, a lot about myself, uh, which on one hand might be enlightening. But uh, when you asked about uh, uh, listening to this negative feedback, uh, comments on social media, uh, I don't have them in the category of uh, relevant comments about my work. So that I would be taking from people I actually work with. Uh, And uh, uh, yeah, uh, stuff about uh, getting a job uh, through the bed and uh, so on. So, but uh, I guess that uh, probably every girl in some relevant position might uh, sooner or later learn something like that about herself. So 
Um, Ala, I think you have a very healthy approach uh, to, you know, uh, not accepting and not letting any uh, nonsense like that to affect your work, uh, which is enlightening, to be sure. My last question is, is there any advice you would give to a starting startup apprentice? Uh, well, uh, work hard, definitely and uh, try to uh, talk with as many people who've been through that uh, before as possible because uh, on one hand, uh, experience is very difficult to transfer. We often have to learn uh, many things on our own, but uh, uh, it's definitely good to have uh, a mentor or uh, someone who can uh, support you uh, in the decisions that you're making because uh, it's not necessary to reinvent the wheel if uh, many people have done it before you. And maybe be a little bit crazy. Well, that you need to be to go that way. <laughs> thank you, Lutia, for being with us today. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It was fun.